That was definitely the mood of the day. I love it. All right. So I did a, a, first of all, huge fan. I have loved your work for many, many years. I have not only enjoyed your work personally as, cause I'm also, my backgrounds as a photographer, but I've also used your work as teaching tools for lighting, tonality, uh, you know, poses, like all the different you know, beautiful technical things that you're able to achieve in your imagery. So I'm a little bit of a fanboy here. So I apologize if I sort Thank of get off. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always good to have one. One, you have so many fans. What are you talking about? <laughs> Trying to be humble. Well, That's cute. Know. Okay. The first thing I read about you that I was like, oh my gosh, I want to know more about this was that you had some issues in childhood, like getting kicked out of schools and things like this, because I too also had problems. I almost got expelled from high school twice. I got, I, I in college, I literally got sort of quote unquote, asked not to return to the university that's their polite oh, way that's of funny my math teacher asked me that i remember going into class and my math teacher says why don't you why do you show up you don't understand what's going on anyway you know and i was like i just turned around and left what am i going to do you know but it, it, it was definitely a side of negligence yeah i somehow you know the, the scary thing is i still feel i have those problems from high school it just didn't it, i just grow with them but truth is, I went to a, a Rudolf Steiner school, which is kind of a little bit esoteric, kind of like private, very religious-based school in, in, in Germany, founded around 1900. You know, they do put an emphasis on arts, which in a way saved me, but it was definitely a bit of a world on its own. I did, I, I think I was the only kid in like 10 years that got kicked out. That's true. You know, and you know, it's the funny story about this, that 20 years later, me being a photographer and all that, they had a class reunion. There was never a clear reason given to me while I was being kicked out of school. I mean, I was 16 years old and they really throw me on the street, you know, which it could have gone wrong. And I asked all my teachers back in the, that class reunion, I was like, what happened? You know, like, what was the reason? And they didn't know. And then one of them just said, we just had it. <laughs> we just had enough. That was 20 years later. That was the official kind of like explanation, you know, but I do think I was a bit of a troubled kid and I didn't really know to find my direction. Well, and that's something I love knowing about creative people too, is like, how did you become creative? So was it your parents that sort of instilled creativity in you? Was it natural? Was it some teachers? Yeah, my mom is an art teacher. So, I mean, it was always there. I come from that background, but photography was not a part of it. It was all about drawing and painting and it was really classic arts. And, and I was never really good at any of that. You know, I was one of these kids that was you know, within, within all the trouble, but I was very inclined to photography and my little Pantax camera. It was literally the kid that between the shampoo and the, the, the soap of, of her mother was doing enlargements in the, in the bathroom while the sister knocking on the door because she wanted to use the shower. And I was like, don't open the door, you know. So, you know, yeah, I was always that kid that, that was just really like focus, you know, like when you're in high school and, you know, some people do sports and some people are into kind of like weird things and then it kind of like dozes off. But I kind of stick to it also because there was never really a plan B because after I got kicked out of school, I've done like one year somewhere else and it didn't go that well either. And then in Germany, you have kind of like a special, um, so, you know, I couldn't go to university because I didn't have a degree. 
So they didn't take me. But then if you go to art school in the town where I was, I don't know if that's standard, but I think you need to bet, get around 50 points to get into art school. And there was like a special clause. If you get 100, they take you anyway. Because literally, you know, obviously you, you have this particular talent because you score twice as high as everybody else. And I did that test when I was around 17 and I got 99 points, which <sighs> means they didn't take me. And my mom, who was very concerned about my future and me wanting to become a gangster, she took me to the principal of the art school and I was like, what are you doing? You know, you take all these other kids with like 50 points. And my son has like 99 and you throw him back on the street. And he was like, look, it was obviously, you know, we tried to give him a sign or a signal because the thing is, he's like much younger. All the other kids finish school. So they're in their early 20s and your son is 17. So we think he doesn't fit in yet. So we, we said, OK, take the 99 points. We clearly take you. You got what it takes, but it's, it's too early. Do something else for a while and come back to us in a year or two and then everything is going to be fine. But we think with age and with everything, he's just not fitting in with all these kids, with the degree, with, with uh, being 20 years old and thing. And so me being a little lost, I knew this, this girl that was working with a photographer and she said, well, maybe you can work as his assistant because you're kind of like really into photography, you know? And that was it. I'd done that. And he, he was sort of like teaching me pretty much at the first day, the camera I still use until today it was a Mamiya. It never changed camera since I'm 17. I never even changed lenses. But then he threw me out after like about six to eight weeks because it didn't really know anything. And, and I was not a very disciplined worker either because I was coming from school. I never had a job. So I was a bit like la-di-da about the whole thing. But he was a nice kid. And true story is that I remember literally the first day I worked with him, he was driving me to the subway station after the job, after we came from the studio. And, you know, I was sitting in the passenger seat and I looked at this guy. He was like 27, 28. You know, he had a girlfriend in the back that was kind of cute. And he had a job in a car. And I remember at this red light, I looked at him and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to be a photographer. I, I like that. This guy has a good life. I never changed my mind since that day. It's what Robert Redford called the acorn moment i don't know if you heard of that theory that sometimes in your life something that just hits you out of the sky like an acorn bang and suddenly you're like you know you, you, your life takes on a certain direction it might have gone there but suddenly something hits you and you said you get a certain sense of like notification <laughs> from above that this is your calling or that you know see the signs that have been given to you and that was my sign one thing I've often wondered about, because also keep in mind, I'm a professor also, so I'm sort of in okay. academia and all that crap and, you know, for better or for worse. But one thing I always wonder about is like, it, for you, you have this amazing career, uh, you know, and you've done some amazing images that sort of are iconic of time periods and iconic of people and this kind of stuff. Like you've done the things that most photographers wish they could achieve in their lifetimes. And you've done it multiple times. But anyways, this is me fanboying. But do you feel that not getting that education, that sort of formalized education was to your benefit or to your detriment? You know what? I'm debating with myself and I'm kind of making peace with this right now because I read Carl Jung's theory about intuition. And I just, I mean, I think, you know, without getting too heavy into that, he said, there is just 
introverted and intuitive people. And then there's more extroverted and like sensational, sensual people. I'm not a very rational person in anything, you know, and I, I always admired people who are more academic. They have a certain clarity, you know, they can explain you why a picture is good. They talk about another photographer and they're very analytical about it. But I'm, I'm coming from an extremely intuitive point. It just, it just feels right. Like I said, I was never really happy about that because maybe I have this complex that I've never finished school and that I'm kind of like the dumb kid. But in the end, it's just a different sense of personality. And I think if you, if you keep your intuition or your instincts kind of pure and you have the confidence to really listen to them, that's what it takes. And that's what guides me through. Again, it's, you know, if I look at a photograph or if I look at a person in a light, it's nothing that I can pinpoint. In general, all you do with photography is you're translating instinct into a craft. So my craft is good enough that I can translate it, but it still needs to start with the instinct of, while I do think it would be an interesting conversation to distinguish the difference of instinct and intuition because there's something in between i guess what you kind of like you know have to figure out where your senses are going but that's pretty much what guides me it when you said that you're a more academic person i have a lot of respect for that i wish i could be like that but i get by without it yeah just to be clear i work in academia but i am not an academic person Okay, okay, okay. I have a lot of respect for that. I always wish I'm, I'm like reading a lot of books and I'm always thinking, you know, I should be, you know, maybe you have just really these old kind of like inferiority complex of not being educated. Well, I don't, we have these horrible inferiority complexes of like, we're not good enough to be in the art world and be successful in that way. And so we fall back on teaching. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, I have this friend who's a, he's a professor of photography somewhere in Dortmund, and we don't agree on anything, not even on the weather, but somehow we keep talking. But he has such a different approach to photography. In the end, every sense of photography in my world, it's a true process of self-revelation. It has nothing to do with technical things. You know, there is a very intuitive journey into yourself, what matters to you, even from a sense of vocabulary, what, what are the words that you can pinpoint that really matter to you when you look at but what connects you with the world? Is it empathy? Is it provocative? Is it sarcasm? Is it curiosity? Always has some sort of like trigger. What triggers you? And I think that's more important than to know what camera you're using. I was never going to ask what camera you're using, but it's okay. But, but I do want to know, like, okay, so as a photographer, when I go out and set up a, a, a photo shoot or whatever, I have sort of a step-by-step of things that I find most important when I'm choosing wardrobe, models, locations, all the different sort of subjects, the mood, the lighting, et cetera. Like, are, what's your sort of process for, like, coming up with your idea, sort of like, for, you know, from the beginning of, I want to do a photo shoot. And then where do you go? So is it the the subject, the model is the first priority, and then the location, then the lighting, then the whatever? Like, what's the hierarchy for you of most important to least important? Well, like I, like I said, the problem is that it's really, and I don't want to like, I really don't want to sound esoteric on this, 
but it is really there is some image that it's not an image there's some sort of like mood you like to create and i think then you try to construct it and to rationalize it but it starts with a very abstract feeling and i i do truly believe that it will arrive at the viewer as a person like you as a very abstract impression you know like when you're a writer you might translate it into words but it's not the words that the per people are really looking at is what the words trigger in their mind you know and what are the images they can evoke so when i look for something it's true i'm i'm very aware that everything has a meaning everything has a message and if you start with a good painting a good painter puts a flower or a a, a window or a chair into his paintings it has compositional reason it has emotional reasons it has a perspective reason it's not there by accident because there was an empty space you know you got to know what you're doing but again when i when i work like this it's very i'm very driven by a very particular sense of what kind of an emotion i like to translate and i cannot really pinpoint it i'm trying because it's a little bit like you know let's go to sport like a you know you can train so hard and you can have every muscle in your body ready but in the end you know there is like that one guy in the front of the goal that puts the foot in and that that the ball is in and it happens so quickly and it's so intuitive i don't think you can really i mean obviously there is a plan but in the end you need to be there and it's funny thing it's always the same guys who put the goal in because there's some sort of like intuitive sense of positioning of like where to be and this ball is just like bouncing around and with photography it's the same thing a good image probably happens in 125th 225th of a second it's so fast and definitely if you if you work the way i do you need to lay the ground for the happy accident it's very chaotic and somehow you need to these accidents need to breathe if you try to force it too much the image looks very stiff and that is also the same thing for the post production you got to let it breathe and it just kind of happens out of that moment and then at that moment you got to be prepared to to take it but it's definitely a, a mix of preparation and intuition that you think that feels right and i think you can take it a step further why does it feel right it feels right to me it might not feel right to another photographer because i'm looking for this i'm editing this it, in my head while i shoot i edit i said put the nose a bit over there i'm very directive i'm not too quick when i shoot but still i'm not really clear i wish i would be more clear like i said but maybe it's good not to be clear because i don't really know what i'm looking for but i'm very clear about the emotion that i want to give to you so for me the model is kind of a messenger it's like a letter i'm sending to you i'm writing something if you write something to a woman you don't know what she's going to read maybe you just had a fight maybe you had an argument you're writing her something you try to explain something now she's in her mood maybe she rips it up maybe makes her even more angry but that's really what a picture is it's kind of a messenger that delivers something to another person and then they kind of like left alone with it Now you cannot tell the other girl when you read this I want you to forgive me for everything and write me back and say everything is fine it's not going to happen you know it's it's kind of out of your hands you're not controlling it I think you need to very much let go 
So yeah, when, what you do with pictures, you're sending messages to people, they're receiving them in their mood, in their time, and they're reflecting it in their mood. That's the interesting part of communication. It's so open. But that's the same thing with me, with myself. It's very open. Does it make sense? Absolutely. I mean, you said so many things. I'm just sort of like, what, which more do I want to know about? But w one thing I really want to know about is also you have a separation between your work or you seem to sort of your commercial and your celebrity work and, and then your fine art work. Do In your mind, do they overlap? Are they one and the same or are they somehow distinctly different to you? No, they're a bit of a searching process. I mean, when I started being a fashion photographer, I was so poor, I couldn't take a cab into the studio. Tell you the truth, the first time I felt very successful in my life is because I could pay a taxi. My agent called me and say, I said, I'm not going to make it. He says, you take a cab. And I was, I was, I remembered sitting in the back of a taxi and I thought, fuck man, I really made it. I'm driving in a taxi to a meeting. So in the beginning, I really wanted just to know if I'm good at it if I can do it. More or less, I wanted to do good fashion pictures, but because I'm maybe a little stubborn and I'm very driven, it just doesn't last that long. So I think there's a process where, and I'm almost a bit afraid of that. I'm turning it more and more into something more personal, more artistic again, and it crystallizes. But in this business, as much as in the movies, having artistic integrity is the most expensive thing you can have because it makes you lose work it makes you lose clients people pay you because you do what they say and the more you bring in with yourself whatever that may be a movie that may be music they're gonna be like why you want to do what you want to do that's not really what i'm looking for so you you know you got to handle it a bit and and it's true you got to be relevant i'm very lucky that i shot a lot of celebrities because it's always an interesting you know, that message you, I, I just talked to you about, you know, that, that, that letter you're writing. If a celebrity carries it, it changes characters. So it's always interesting to have it delivered through somebody that people think they know. At some point, my work got a little, I, I don't want to say commercial, but I couldn't really recognize myself in it. And I felt I'm not pushing it hard enough. I'm not, I don't know if you know these pictures I shot of Emma Watson with the white paint on her face. Absolutely. That was kind of a turning point because, you know, I, I was, it was a very regular, you know, my agent even says, "Ma, you want to shoot Emma Watson? I don't know, you know, Harry Potter. I was like, no, no, she's beautiful. I really want to meet her. So I fly to London and I, I, I did these pictures with her and, you know, I, I like the job, but I felt I have to do something more with it. That there's this French movie, Les Enfants du Paradis, from the, the 1930s. And I think it's Maurice Carnet. I saw that and, I, you know, these people have these white faces and it's a bit theatrical and it's a bit surreal. And I showed it to her and I says, you know, do you mind if we do something like this kind of like after the shoot? And she's like, no, I love it. Great idea. And the funny thing is that actually then we put the makeup on. And then when I started shooting it, the editor from the magazine, which is kind of a vicious thing to do, came to Emma and said, you know what? We kind of like an overtime and we're not going to use these pictures. So... I don't think this is really going anywhere, which basically talked to Emma saying, you're wasting your time and no celebrity ever likes to waste their time. That's the one thing you need to respect. If you tell them these pictures go to the garbage, they're gone. But Emma was kind enough and smart enough to say to her, I actually really like to shoot these pictures and like to finish this. So she really pushed back. And then obviously 
she was like, oh, 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 excuse me. You know, she's like, okay, just give us 10 minutes. It's not going to take long. So Emma really saved me. And we did those shots. And I felt by adding on my more personal vision onto the back of the shoot, it really got me further. And then it's shifting a bit. If you listen, for example, to movie directors or to Martin Scorsese, for example, talks a lot about it. I mean, how do you handle the balance with the studio? You know, you do one for them, you do one for yourself. If you do one, you do it half for you, half for yourself. Other people pay for your production most of the time. So you got you to gotta compromise. But where's the compromise? Do you remember those, those pictures I took of David Beckham with the blood on his face? I believe so, yes. <laughs> Actually called me like two days before. And they said, look, you want to shoot David Beckham? And, you know, back in that, he was a footballer. I was like, oh, who cares? Whatever, you know. He was, but I was like, he's a good-looking guy. You know, everybody knows him. Of course I shoot him. And it was for a cover of the Face magazine. And the night before, I was in the hotel room watching Private Ryan. And I was like, well, that, that, that would be very interesting to shoot Beckham like a soldier, like a Private Ryan, you know, with the dirt on his face and with the helmet and really, like, really, like, roughed up. And so I called the stylist and says, you know what, get some military stuff, get some broken things. And I'm going to see if I can kind of like pass the concept. And then we went to the studio and David kind of liked the idea. He didn't want to do the soldier thing too rough, but he liked the, the dirty part. So we kind of like, you know, made him roughed him up a little bit and put a lot of makeup and sweat and, and stuff in his face. And the magazine was really unhappy with the pictures. They really said, look, this is not the David Beckham we want to show. They want to have something clean and very good looking and very heroic and and i made him look like he was kind of like walking on his knees into the studio then david had these kind of like asian food for for lunch in between and you know he had these little like what, what is it called rooster sauce you know the red stuff you know these little like red sauce you have in these little bottles you know, yeah really spicy so i was there and he was kind of like snacking something on the side and then suddenly he took this bottle and he was putting it over his head so it was just running down a little bit like blood. And I was like, whoa, nice. And I took like three, four shots. And literally at this moment, the, the editor from the magazine walked and he said, that's enough. That, that's, that's not what I want. That's not why you're here. I'm breaking off the shoot. I was like, dude, right, you know, relax. Just come on. Just look. He's like, this is not the David Beckham that we want to have on the cover. So they literally broke off the shoot. And somehow, but then they looked at the pictures, I guess. And somehow the sun, you know, in England, got, got a hold of the, the, the pictures. And they printed it as a cover because obviously it was David Beckham. He had a mohawk shape for the shoot. So it kind of like fitted together. It ended up probably the most publicized pictures I've ever done. Then the face did print it on the cover of the magazine and it sold like crazy. It just teaches you about the absurdity especially movie making, because I'm kind of interested in it. I can give you tons of examples of producers specifically, almost personally, try to destroy a shoot or manipulate it or take it away from you. And in the end, it's a huge success if you get away with it, which often you don't. Like I said, if I would have done some clean cut, pretty boy shots of David, you know, it would have been maybe cute, but not memorable. I can give you a long list of pictures There are maybe today more iconic or in my books or in galleries, but these pictures were never supposed to happen. So come from a commercial point of view, you really have to fight your authorship through. Indeed. I mean, I tried at one point in my career to be a commercial photographer, specifically like fashion and that kinds of stuff. 
And it was a, at a certain point it got, because I was never really sort of at that echelon that you are, like where basically people hire you because they already know what they're going to get from you. I was still trying to prove myself. And there was this constant battle of answering to the client, but keeping some integrity to what I do. Like, so like, you, you know, you won't do certain things. Like I won't do, like I did a wedding one time in my life and I will never do a wedding ever again. It was the most horrible experience of my entire life. You know, and there are many things like this that a lot of creative people go through sort of this whole process of how, how much of myself am I going to allow to be dictated by a client and how much am I going to stand up for my own beliefs? Do you go through that struggle as well? Every day. And it's very, like I said, you know, you take Orson Welles, you take every photographer, I'm telling you. If you look at it, for example, what's interesting is that a creative director I worked with in New York that told me that he wanted to use a picture from Urban Penn for one of his books, one of the Vogue pictures. And they were like, no, nah, that's, not, that's not work we're going to release. With Urban Pen, the commercial work will not be released out of his foundations. And if you look at, for example, the work from Richard Abaddon, Penn and Abaddon, I mean, these guys, they were Vogue photographers on contract for, what, 30 years more? I'm not sure, but long time, decades. You will not see that work very, very rarely. What you see from Abaddon is always the same pictures. It's the portraits, some celebrities, the fashion work. He's publishing is that work from the 1950s he's done in Paris, which is excellent. But these people, they put all the commercial work under the table in the box and they lock it up. You see that there's always that struggle. What do you want to be remembered for? What do you want your heritage to be like? It's true. Do you like the money and you like the lifestyle? But I learned from that also. I think it's interesting how rigid these people are to kind of like cut out certain parts of the commercial work out of like all the foundation work. Well, what do you want your legacy to be? I think what's important for a photographer, it's also, it has so much to do just with yourself. I think you cannot beg an audience to receive you in a certain way. I think if you're any good, you have to go up the river, not down the river. You have to go, where's the source? Why do you take these pictures? When I go through like a, a, a gallery show I've done, yeah, I just had one in Sweden and they had these huge prints of myself on the walls. And it's, it's a very embarrassing process, but I think that's what's necessary. You're kind of naked there. It's like there's so much personal stuff and then you're thinking, why? And especially with me, because my work is very specific. And I'm asking myself, why am I shooting like that? Why does my mind, my intuition, why do I translate it from that place? And it's a very psychoanalytical work. For example, if, you, if you're, you know, I don't know if this makes any sense to you right now. I used to have all these back pains because I was working with a camera, like always bent over. And I went to this chiropractor and my back hurt like crazy and I couldn't even walk. And he was doing these things to my foot and to my knee. And I'm like, nah, okay, appreciate your attention. But, you know, it kind of like hurts at the back. And then he was doing something at the neck. And I really learned from him, pain travels. The pain is not where it hurts. And it's the same thing with your pictures. Your vision travels and it, you, have to, you have to follow the nerves. You have to find the source. And when you find the source, it, you, it might not feel it like that. But that's how you find out. It's a, like I said, it's, it's really a process where you get to know yourself. 
I hope I've, I learned something about myself. I probably learned something about uh, how I grow up, my relationship with my dad, maybe with Germany. You know, why did I leave that country? I mean, that it's biography that that drives your pictures. He does. When it comes to that kind of stuff, though, too, like when I'm thinking of legacy kind of things, like what do we want to be known for as artists and stuff? We're often I often think about like when I put on an exhibition, this is what always happens every freaking time I've had an exhibition. I will put on an exhibition. And I'll be like, this is the best piece right here. This is the the centerpiece. Put it in the, you know, the most prominent place. And then, and then I put up the entire exhibition and then there's like a little empty space. And I'm like, okay, let's just throw up this last piece. Everybody loves that random piece at the end, but nobody admires that one that I thought was the greatest. So my wonder is like, am I alone in this? Am I the only person that where like, I love certain pieces and have incredible attachments to certain pieces that nobody else likes. And everybody loves the pieces that I'm just sort of like, yeah, it's fine. It's okay. But they think they're the best. It's not healthy in that sense, I feel, to be so distracted by that sense of popularity. I'm so tempted to communicate with my Instagram community about this because, of course, we all we all want to be liked. We all influence by things that we get a reaction for. And maybe sometimes we need a corrective push, but the way right now the audience is reacting, it's very trivial. You can see that the taste levels are dropping and it does influence us as photographers. And I think if you look at it, I know nude and celebrity gets attention. A nude celebrity gets the most attention, but it's not substantial work it doesn't pass the message that i like to communicate with it doesn't make me interact with people on the level that i think it's interesting it doesn't peel the onion it doesn't take away those layers that i think are interested in communication you know if i get however a, a, a naked picture of adriana lima it's just instant gratification for a kind of visual appetite and i think we all you know your, your audience is has a hold of you, just like maybe your producers or your, your clients have financially. And if they're constantly twisting your arm to stay away from yourself, it's not healthy. And it's not healthy for them because if you only give them what they already want, you're not challenging the audience. You know, you're not giving them something to think about. I don't think a lot of people like to think about anything they're watching on, on their phones today. But I still think, look, we decided to communicate like this. We need to make more out of this. And in the, what is it? You know, you probably know better than me. 1.5 seconds, an average Instagram post is being looked at. If you're lucky. In a museum, even if you're running, you can't even run that quick from one image to another. So our whole sense of digesting our, our environment is, is, is really changing, you know. Well, what do you think about that? Like, because... Of course, I, I have a long-standing position that I'm not a fan of social media, though, of course, you know, at being in business these days, you just have to participate whether you like it or not. But I'm not a fan of it because, again, like you were saying, like it sort of waters it all down to a, a mediocrity instead of excellence of craft and skill and whatever else. So that's my little soapbox. But so do you you still make prints because like I wonder these days about like how important are making physical objects of photographs anymore? Well, like I said, I mean, I'm very stubborn with this. I do. But I think you have to approach it also from another thing. These are all products of convenience. 
And we consume them on that level of, oh, it's so much easier. And, and I mean, if you think about it, something that really changed the world the most is probably plastic and cars. Because it's so convenient to jump into a car and to go to Vienna for the weekend or to go to Milan. And, you know, it, gets, it makes more world available. It makes space available. Yeah, you can see your girlfriend in another city or, you know, go back to your parents or whatever fancy you. But think about the same way with plastic. On the 1950s, plastic was the hottest thing. You could, you could pack up everything. It makes it easier. It makes it probably even hygienic. And today, even if we would stop producing plastic at this very moment, this day on Monday, we would not be able to get rid of this stuff for another thousand years. As far as I'm aware of, there's islands in the Pacific made out of plastic. They're the size of probably Ibiza. And I think what is plastic for the environment is what digital and social media is for your head. You know, it goes in there. And it's going to be very hard to get it back out because it, it manipulates your awareness and your attention span. You know, the way you focus on something, that constant multitasking. Now we like maybe on the third generation of, of people, they do not know life without television. Before you had to sit in a movie, you had to go to a movie, you sit there for two hours. Then you sit watching the movie at home, you watch some popcorn. Today, nobody watches through a Netflix movie. I mean, first of all, it's all shortened down. It's all packaged up. In between, you take your phone, you talk to your friends, you probably go cooking. Nobody watches the whole thing in one sense through. It completely changes your attention. And those movies are made like that because they constantly need to build in a cliffhanger. The emotional progress in the film, you know, the emotional process, and I don't want to go back as far as an opera or a symphony, but the way an emotion can build up it takes a while. So basically what we're doing today is it's constant speed dating. How fast can you understand a person in front of you? And just like, oh, he looks like that. And he's into that checklist. Now he's boring. I'm not good. No, we're not compatible. You know, a toxic relationship. But you don't give time things anymore. You know, sorry if my answers are too elaborate. No, this is amazing. I love elaborate answers. Please continue. <laughs> The thing that I notice is like when I think back to like being in undergraduate school, we used to go out and buy the new magazines that were out. So the the American Photo, the the, the different publications that came out. So like an image, let's say, that was somehow even Vogue and all these other places, they would be there for a month. So like everybody would be looking at them constantly for a month and they would become ingrained into our sort of cultural psyche of the time. These days, even things like Vogue and all that stuff, they put out their cover thing and then they put out like a dozen more images every week throughout the entire month. So like we as a culture don't even take the time to like let images be part of our culture in the same way that we did even 20 years ago. And it majorly influences also, just on a very practical note, the production, because, you know, an advertising campaign, you know, they used to shoot, you know, a couple of images for a season, then they put them on the posters, they've been repeated. And that was the product campaign of 1990 fall, you know what I mean? So that was it. And today, obviously, they put more images out in one day that they used to put out in a year, but also the production, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they put more money out. So you have to produce a lot more images in a day. You have to do the TikTok video and the interview and the behind the scenes at the same time. So, I mean, everything has been squished down because they just know that people don't pay attention to it. But I do think it majorly influences the way people even see 
that image. It doesn't, it doesn't build the iconic state. Advertising campaigns from Saint Laurent, Dior, or Gucci, you know, they just stay with you, you know, or Prada. But I think what it's very true what you say about magazines. I mean, apart from the fact that when I started being a photographer, we shot about three, four images a day. For a six-page editorial, we had two days. I mean, today, possible, 12 pages a day. No, I mean, like, there's just only so far you can pay attention and so quick you can shoot and so many concepts you can, you can apply. But also, I think you have to say that fashion is a, a business model that, that's 100 years old. When magazines were good enough to slightly switch illustration against printing photography, when was it? Around, you know, the early 30s, maybe, late 20s. That's when Vogue really started rising and the whole Condé Nast magazine really walked up. You know, if you look at photographers like Avedon, like Newton, they followed one business model their life. They tried to develop a more personal style and editorial. They were pushing boundaries, you know, breaking some rules. And then with the advertising, they got compensated for it. And that's how they were able to sustain a living. And today that is completely breaking apart within just a very short time, within years. So again, what I like is what I said before about the plastic. I think Instagram, to be specific, is causing damage to photography because there will be no Instagram images in a museum in, in 50 years. But there are images from Vogue 1930, 1960 today in the museums, from Penn, from Sief, from you name it. That's the history of photography. If you go to Paris Photo, it's fashion pictures from Lindbergh taken for magazines. And the way that they take it, they, they took this away. Also for the simple exposure just to get data and to kind of like, you know, cover it up with, with you know, kind of like the vanity of self-exposure. It caused a lot of damage to this industry. And I don't know if they ever will recover. How is your business model working these days? Not I'm not asking like, say, how are you doing in business? But like, how has your business sort of changed? So like, you know, from starting back in the 1990s up till now, you're saying that basically less money, faster turnaround, all that kind of stuff. I mean, of course, back then you started with working with film. And so now you're having, I'm sure, having to do a lot of digital work. So like what other kinds of things have been affected by the sort of advanced, quote unquote, advances in the industry? <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know if you know these books I've got, but there's a book that called Personal. I love that book. Yes. And that kind of like was quite a game changer for me because, you know, that girl, you know, her name is Sonia. I shot her in Coney Island for Italian Vogue story with six other girls. And I ran into her in Paris on the street and I'm like, oh, what are you doing? She's like, well, you know, not much. I'm just kind of like just hanging out. And she's like, she was asking me, do you want to do some work? And I was doing occasional like a little bit of like personal photo shoot sometimes, you know, some black and white stuff, you know, like all photographers, you know, you do some nudes or something, you know, a little bit on the side, just to keep your imagination going. You know, Sonia was quite a beauty and she was kind of like really into doing a photo shoot. And I was thinking, yeah, let's do something, but let's not just do it in some like hotel room against the window. I, I was like, okay, let's take this serious. You know, I rented this theater and I got real production. I got assistant hair and makeup. It was the first time I organized a personal full production like it would be for a magazine. But it would be kind of weird for me because there was no commission. I didn't know what to do with the pictures after. Nobody asked for them. I was not shooting any fashion. So I was a little bit just jumping into the water and I didn't know where to go with this. And it produced this photograph 
later on you know it, it was just you know i was very lucky you know we shot at eight in the morning and the first sunlight came through the through the windows and and i, I did some really nice shots and they turned out to be very valuable to me and and i realized that i don't need to be commissioned it's not that people don't need to tell me what to do i don't need to be commissioned and i started working more and more also in that direction and i'm trying to step it up you know, if you're a musician, if you're a photographer, if you're a painter, you do what you do because you're doing it. You don't always just do it because somebody's asking you to put out a new album or to paint the the neighbor's wife. It's just that that's what you do. You know, for example, I was you know I was in LA for a while in spring. I was lucky enough that that you know I could organize a couple of days with Adriana Lima flying over, and we were just working. And we were just doing pictures and, and I'm so happy with the work. And I'm, I'm very grateful that she's flying over to LA. The point of these photographs was to do good work, to do pictures that we both like. And there was no 30 images a day, kind of like shoot the shoes, shoot the bag and do another behind the scenes video while we, while we at it. It was not about that. So that's pretty much what I do right now. If I have time in between commissioned work i'm trying to really define my authorship and it helps me just do work that i feel is good and that is not clouded or where's no editor like with beckham walking in and is breaking off the shoot i mean i do think you need a bit of both i'm a very nostalgic person i'm just i just keep working the way i did in the 90s 2000s has the fine arts world sort of embraced you and accepted you? Because for a long time, there was this sort of divide in the photo world between commercial photographers and fine art photographers. And they don't, they very, very rarely overlapped, partly because very rarely did any photographer's skill set sort of overlap the interest of both as well. So some amazing commercial photographers oftentimes didn't make very good fine arts and fine arts photographers often didn't do very good commercial works. But you seem to have bridged that pretty well, I think, from, from an outsider's perspective. But do you feel like the fine arts industry has accepted your work? Well, I think, you know, what's so interesting, and I think a lot that I, I like that question. I think about that a lot. Because really what it burns down to, it's the definition of your point of view. I think the fine art world, maybe not in photography, but definitely in art in general right now, is, is rather the, the essential of what you are as a photographer. Your point of view is an attitude, is the distinction about how you connect with life and with other people. You know, obviously, what's very appreciated today in the fine arts world is a, is a provocative point of view, a sarcastic point of view, cynical point of view, also even a destructive point of view. But I have a kind point of view. I don't mind if people are beautiful. It's a sense of respect. It's a sense of kindness. And to tell you the truth, without a base of kindness, I haven't seen any relationship that got anywhere because people are not opening up. You know what? Take a relationship to a plant. If you don't have a sense of kindness to her, you're not going to get close to it. You're not interacting with it. You feel repulsed by it or you're afraid of it. But to adopt something, maybe in English, a translation would be to have sort of a loving gaze. With anybody you sit down in a cafe, if you don't have that, you're not going to be open and you're not going to take anything in. I do 
agree with you that this is not a popular point of view. And I, because I think people like to, you know, we have these like the artist has to be the punk in the room and he has to counter culture and, and disconnect from all the rules of the bourgeois kind of like banker society. He has to be so different. He has to cut his ear off and we all have to live through Van Gogh's biography. But I think Van Gogh has had a very kind point of view on humanity and on work. And if you look at his portraits, he's a very gentle person. And I wonder if today his work would have been provocative enough to be exhibited. If you look at all the impressionists from the time. And then, okay, I think, you know, Picasso was maybe battling to disconnect from a, an obvious understanding of, let's say, the, the middle class or the bourgeoisie for his work. But I think the reason why some photographers are more or less not successful or more successful is because also the art world with financial or just with the expectation adopting or narrow themselves to this very provocative, incomprehensive and absurd point of view. And I, like I said, I think it's not gaining audience. It's just because people like your work or find something in it, you know, beauty is something that can be discussed for a long time. And it's not superficial. The, the beauty standards from the Greeks, whatever it is, it's something that is shallow. Beauty is a very interesting subject. But I think art today doesn't know what to do with beauty because it doesn't really know how to market it because it feels it's decorative. And I think that's where the disconnect is between maybe some of my work and the art work. At an exhibition at a, a retrospective at Photographiska in Stockholm, I was sharing the, the, the floor with a very interesting photographer from Holland that, you know, she did these photo constructions, you know, it was a bit humoristic, was kind of funny, but it was, you know, very like, you know, kind of more intellectual, humoristic. But my work is, is very emotional. I try to connect with a certain sensibility with people. You don't need to use your brain when you look at my work. I don't think the brain is the most interesting organ that we have. Well, I find your work to be what I refer to as sort of like an elegant timelessness. Like, you know, no matter who the person is or when the person is, it, they, they look like they've been removed from time periods, even though, of course, there's hairstyles and makeup styles and clothing styles that probably have some time period to them. But still, there's this effortlessness to them that's just, you know, again, timeless is the easiest word I can come up with. But along with that, you also use a, a, some amount of like nudity in some of your personal work and a little bit of your commercial work, but more so in your personal work. Have you had any pushback, at least especially in the past couple of years, about using nudity? No, not at all. I think the beauty standards of nudity have been more or less established by the Greeks and have been changed very little since Venus of Milo or, or I think those beauty standards or nudity standards that, that you find in my work, you know, you find in any Greek temple from like 3000 years ago. It depends what you do with nudity. If you want to provoke, if you want to provoke an obvious reaction, if you want to provoke sexuality, but nudity can also have a, a lot of degrees of honesty. You know, it has, it has a vulnerability. You know, if I, if I would be naked standing myself in a gallery, I would feel very vulnerable. There is a sense of shame and a sense of fragility. And if somebody comes to me, have a kind point of view, a kind look, 
That's what I was trying to have in my work. Because, you know, you remember that kind look that you got when you were a child and an adult looked at you in a kind way and it opened and opened communication. You were less afraid. But like I said, I think if you, if you clearly use nudity just to, to provoke a certain sense of hormonal reaction, it's, you know, it, it may be a bit easy. It works. I don't think I'll do that in my work. Personally, I don't think my work is very sexual. But I mean, sex is part of life. I don't mind it. I, I have a huge respect for Helmut Newton. And, and I think fashion couldn't be without it. I think that the career Helmut Newton made is because he, was, he had the capacity to, to make money sexy and to connect sex with money. And I think that's what most of his pictures are all about. Honestly, I think it's really important what you just said about the timeless factor. Because I'm always searching what lies below the work and what you're looking for. And it's not easy to define this in a certain way. But I was, you know, even the photographs we talk about, if you go through history of photography, you mentioned the word timeless, but the photograph is so attached to that moment and the way all those moments will pass. And even a picture that's been taken 10 minutes ago sometimes seems to be as far away for us as the picture that's been taken 10 years ago. It's gone. The moment has been passed. So every picture that we take in is also a dialogue with, in a certain sense, our own mortality, you know, that everything just comes and goes. And it has the melancholy that we cannot hold on to anything. Look how happy I was yesterday, you know, when I was with my friends. And I think when you talk about beauty and work, beauty is something so much bigger than an aesthetic manifestation or an aesthetic rules. Beauty is something that you feel part of something that's bigger than you, that there's something out there that is larger. You feel the beauty of the nature. You often feel the beauty of the moments with your friends. You know, you feel that you're part of something that is that holds you. And I think you can interpret it in the, the photograph in that it's so much attached to that moment. And all those moments are gone. Everything disappears. There's a beautiful book from a French writer, Marcel Proust who wrote in 1913, In Search of Lost Time. And I think there's no better definition of a photograph. That's really what we do in, in, in a society. That's, that's all, everything we do today is about acceleration, making things available, making everything faster. Everything is about time today. Everything is about getting to places faster. Writing 30 emails instead of one letter, it's easier, it's faster, it's more convenient. And what do we gain through that? We have longer to-do lists, we are more stressed about it, and we have a, a huge sense today of holding on to time because, you, I mean, within anything, we, I think we both agree, photography is the public hysteria of the moment. Everything will be photographed. We take more pictures today in two hours then we took in the entire 150 years of photography combined. So where does this come from? Why does a society that's constantly exhilarating everything, always speeding up everything, and you can really get into details that everything we want today needs to be faster and, and, and everything is about getting to places faster and, and being more efficient, saving time. But we cannot create any time. And I think what we try to, with, within that fear that the life is just running like sand through our fingers, we photograph everything. We, we put thousands and thousands of images onto our iPhones, you know, and we hardly ever look at them. When we look for one, 
How many times did you sit in a cafe with a person and he wants to show you a picture and he goes to his whole iPhone bank, he doesn't even find the picture because it's, it, it, it's been one of 30,000. So yes, I think even those women I shoot, as famous as they are, it's always attached to that moment. And if you look, if you know, like I, I just spent a few months in Hollywood at the Beverly Hills Hotel and you have sometimes, you know, in the evening you have these actors passing by and so interesting, you know, because you've seen them on film and then you see them sitting there having dinner, but they're 50 years older. Time just passed, it, but within seconds, like I said, I said, look, I, I've, I've seen you. Yeah, I could Google you right now, probably, you know, what, what do you look like when you were 30 and now you're sitting there and you're like almost 90. It's very strange what time does to us, the way it's so unstoppable, the damage it does, you know, the way it passes us through. And yeah, that's the big part of my work. Even when I shot Adriana, like a few months ago in Hollywood, she's already a different person that the moment is already gone. And we were trying to hold on to it. Everything that is there will disappear. Oh yeah. The, the speed of the, of life is, is astronomical and the speed of the social media and the speed of the expectations, uh, like, you know, like my artworks these days take me three to four months to create like one piece. And like, so it, as far as like the internet's concerned, I'm barely making anything versus some other photographers who are banging out hundreds and hundreds of photos every week. And it, it saddens me. It's the the entire mediocrity of the the way that the the internet has sort of encouraged the arts is I find very sad and depressing for the future. And the homogeneity on it, you know, everything looks the same. Everything is becoming the same. If you go through America, if you go through any city, you can go from Armani to Kentucky Fried Chicken. You can go to Starbucks, back to Dior buying the same thing, tasting the same sugar. You know, you can probably even stay in some boutique hotel, sleeping with the same batches, seeing the same pictures on the wall. You have no idea where you are. And the experience people have and the taste level is considerably dropping. And it's not their fault because they constantly, and even I noticed that, you look at these girls on the internet, they all look the same because they're all using the same filters. Absolutely. A totally random thing that I was wondering about. So like when you're doing commercial work, of course, you have a, a an art director or an editor or somebody overseeing the choices being made and stuff like this. When it comes to your personal works, do you make all the choices or do you work with a curator or some sort of an editor to help sort of refine the personal works? No, I wish I had a good opinion. You know, I mean, I'm open to everything, but no, I, I just walk through this. I torture with this myself. You know, I also go through some real depressions that I think it's all meaningless and it's a disaster. And I'm the worst photographer ever walked the planet, but I'm, I'm serious. You know, you, I'm, I'm very like a kid of the tortured artist, but maybe I just put too much pressure on myself, but no, no, nobody's helping me out. How is the gallery sort of working for you? I know you're with camera work in Germany, which is an amazing gallery. And so like, I, you know, does, is it, um, I don't know how to put it sort of like, is it a, a big part of your business model doing like exhibitions and sales or is most of your work business income coming still from doing, you know, commercial works? Well, I think it's, it's still more commercial works, it really clarified what I do because doing artistic work, you have, it, you know, there is no purpose. The purpose is a good picture. You have no excuse. 
So the expectations you're having towards yourself is very different. And I think, like I said, when I when I look at fashion today, you're like, oh, you know, that's a nice shot for a sweater because they had to shoot 10 of them in one day. But it only works on that. If you look at, like I said, if you look at classic work, I mean, I again, agreeing with you, Guy Bourdin, Helmut Newton, they did two, three pictures a day maximum. And it, it worked only on that basis. They could really, it, it, you, are, you cannot create more than that. You know, there's the photographer that I really love, Bruce Davidson says, if you do three good shots a year, you had a really good year. And I think if you, the, even that sounds very little, but if you look at photographers like Herb Ritz and you look at their career and then you think, okay, you know, this guy was maybe working, you know, 15, 20 years and, you know, three shots a year. Well, that's a good book. I mean, we're talking truly good work. That's sort of like what people came up with. Even like in the end, you can dial down most people's work to 30, 50 good shots. And that's a lot. Even with Newton, you know, like the most iconic pictures, it's probably 30 pictures, you know, and everything around it. It's interesting and it's a discovery. But in the end, you can cut it down to some. And I think, like I said, when you work on a more artistic base, I don't think the artistic thing as a vocabulary should confuse you, but you just don't have any excuses. You have to say, look, I've done this. And it's not just because it's a good shot of some cereal or of a jacket or of a lipstick. You know, it needs to, it, the picture needs to live on its own. It needs to have the, the, the message needs to be an emotional response with the audience. Does it have that? Does it move people? That's in the end. That's what a picture is all about. And I think it, it's, it's very important not to, not to discard that. Well, I mean, that brings up the idea, like the, the idea of like taking an entire person's career and whittling it down to just a few representations. I like for you, when I think of your work, I can think of like three prominent pieces that make me go like, yes, that is an iconic work by Vincent. So how does it feel from your side when people sort of, for lack of a better way, like pigeonhole you or sort of like had this like the only things I know about that this person and their work is these three images and they don't know about everything else. And they, you know, and you have a wide breadth of things you've done, but these people only know a few things. Like, is that, is that good? Like, do you, does it make you feel like, okay, at least they got those. So like they know me, or do you sort of wish that people knew the wider breadth of your work? Well, I think it can only be an entrance, you know, it's kind of like when you said, okay, I only know, I know, I'm not really into rock, but yeah, I heard of the Rolling Stones and the, uh, didn't they do this? I can get no satisfaction song going, you know, it's maybe it's just not your cup of tea, but then if you're interested, you look at you, you, you know, you know that there's like 20 records behind it and, you know, a lot more material for yourself. I think you have to ask yourself, is that really your best work? Sometimes it, it is or it's not. It's not always, it's not easy to really, what you said before with, uh, with the exhibition. Do I know what people expect from me? Do I see myself the way other people see me? And I think as an artist, if you're a photographer, you may do that through your work. Now, maybe if you're a model or an actor or a celebrity, you, you do it through your face. Do you see yourself the way other people see you? And what do you think are your mistakes? Do other people see it even as a mistake or is it just your own insecurities you try to compensate? Are you fighting the right battles? Are you fighting the battles to really get better or are you just fighting you know, your own insecurities? 
do you just want to put some image out there of yourself that may not really be you, but maybe you always wanted to be that guy? When you are doing, so let's not worry about commercial work. So let's say personal works. When you're doing it, do you do you go into it with an intention and a purpose of like, I want to achieve this, I want to express this, I want to I want to build an entire exhibition or a book or a something around this sort of topic, or do you shoot and then sort of retroactively sort of put things together and say, oh, those look great together? I think for everybody who does something as excessive as I do it, it's sometimes it's good to step back and try to think of yourself as doing another profession. Like, what, what would my pictures be like if I would be a musician? What would my pictures be like if it would be music? And I think, how would you approach your work? And I think it gives you a better perspective sometimes. So in that sense, I think it's more like that you feel sometimes, you know, you get a certain influence and maybe you want to do a more jazzy song or you want to do maybe something that's more of a musical, maybe something you want to do something that has more of an opera influence. And I think you just need to get this out and go for it. And I think you cannot always, even though you might be influenced by it, but I think, you know, you need to liberate yourself from the, from the pressure of popularity. But as something that is burning in you, and I think you sort of like need to digest it somehow, you know, there's a certain hunger. It is a difficult balance because like I'm the kind of artist I generally sort of work rather privately and I make my stuff and then, and then I sort of drop it on the world and be like, this is it, it's done. And there, there's a huge anxiety on that sort of separation of like, I put a lot of time, effort, money, whatever into this project. And you really, really hope that people respect and appreciate it, but you never know. Yeah. But you know, success is, success is an affair. It's not a marriage and you need to take it while it flies. And if you, if you run after it, it's somebody you meet in a motel. You know, you got to take it for what it is as a good time, but it will never stay with you. It's not a loyal thing. And I think the more you chase it, the more you get away from who you are and where you've been. It happened at this place. So I think you cannot get away from it. And I think obviously, I think when you look, I mean, look, an artist in any sense, and I, I, it's hard for me to use that word because it, it, I don't know if I could, would ever have the, the privilege to consider myself being an artist. I have a lot of respect for that word. But I think, let's say, maybe not talking about me. In general, an artist needs to be an island. You need to come to them. You in entering their world and there needs to be an integrity and a complexity to their world where you feel at that moment you're getting something. It's a place to visit. It's a place, you know, it's like a vacation. You go there or a city, you know, like to Prague. And it needs to be what it is. And if Prague suddenly wants to be more of a Dubai or it wants to be, you know, it's afraid or it, it needs to open more McDonald's or more Starbucks or, you know, because it needs to say, oh, you know, look at Vienna has a lot of success with that and we need to be more like them. You you sell out your integrity and, and you know, you, you just you're not becoming somebody else. You're just diminishing what you are. I mean, I just think about what Frank Sinatra must have gone through. I mean, he was the guy with a tuxedo on stage. And then suddenly the doors came and it was the 60s and those rockers with the leather pants. And I mean, somebody told him, oh, you know, maybe you want to do my way with a bit more of a guitar. It would never work. It was hard for him to be that guy in a tuxedo in Vegas, but that was his world. And if you want that, and, and if you're lucky enough, after some point, you may become a classic. But, you know, you, you're not going to be able to go to Bob Dylan and tell him to put out a disco riff or like a beat under his songs. It's not him. 
It is what it is. And I think it's the same thing for all of us. Well, I read an art, I read an interview with you where you talked about the the quote unquote like the luck of being in the right place at the right time with meeting the right people that sort of launched your career. But I think what but what I'd like to know more about is actually not necessarily how you started, but how you maintained it. Because like it's one thing to be in the right place, right time, and all that, but then like you still have to continually evolve and reprove yourself and sort of continually uh, you know progress. If you just rely on that one instance of luck, it's not going to make a career. But you've been able to sort of evolve and, and grow from that. Well, you can say, you know, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. You know, you get a shot and you need to be prepared to take it. It's the same thing again. It's like it's like meeting your wife at an airport. You know, in the end, you just meet a girl. You make the right joke. You kind of like you make her think about you when you're gone and you make her call you back. If you just say the wrong thing and you just sit there and smoke a cigarette and you're distracted, it's gone. You know, it's it's a very fragile moment. At this moment, if if you do something, if you get a good job, if you have an opportunity and there's definitely few and there's fewer in between, you got to know what people expect from you. And the same thing for me. If I work with a model or I work with an actress and it did happen, and maybe at this point, suddenly they wanted to change image. They wanted to completely. I mean, I worked with a singer, very famous singer. And, and she had these moments, she was always very typecast with the hair and it was, you know, and I could tell when, when I worked with her, she brought out a new record and she wanted to have a complete different look. It was the look she wanted from the girl in, in Scarface. She wanted to look like Michelle Fife and Scarface, you know, the bangs and you know what I'm talking about? I know the look. Yes. Yeah. And it just didn't work. And it was very hard for me to say. Yeah, well, I can see that you're going through this fatigue and everybody, you know, she was working against herself. She was rather working out of a personal insecurity than rather going with the audience. So she was just experimenting in the wrong way. But like I said, some, you, know, you got to know to a certain point what people expect from you. Again, going back to Frank Sinatra. And it's the same thing for a photographer. I mean, obviously, we have to improvise and try different things. But in the end, you got to know who you are. And if I would do it like her, if I would suddenly just put some strange wigs on in the end, they see it as a road that goes in the wrong direction. Hopefully it leads you back to who you are. You know what I mean? I do indeed. All right. So I'm tr let's sort of try and wrap this up a little bit. The, the last things I often ask people is generally some sort of advice for the next generation. So I'm still a teacher and I, and I'm, you know, I have the honor of being able to talk to somebody who's had great success. And so Anything you could help them with to maybe something to avoid, even some mistakes that maybe you made in your career that you'd be like, yeah, don't do this. That's going to fuck up your career. You get these questions. People write me on Instagram and you want to answer them. And they always ask you how to become a better photographer. And sometimes, you know, whatever, I've done a workshop and people look at you and they say, basically, they say, tell me how to make more money. Tell me how to be more successful. And I just don't think, you know, there's not like a catchphrase that can solve this. I think in general, what I'm saying is really what we talked about in this, that I said, you got to know who you are. You got to know where your, where your strength is. Where do you come from? Like I said, compare yourself to other professions. Like an actor, he needs to fit in that screen. People place him in a certain way. He's connecting. He's, he's passing a message. And I don't think it's a very rational process. People connect with an actor because he's representing a part of themselves. And, and they could imagine that he takes that part of who you are and he runs with it. And at that point, you feel, 
I could be that guy. And you identify with it and you get invested. But he needs to know who he is to be able to carry that piece of you. And a photographer needs to do the same thing. Well, so to get back to your question, your photographs are clearly extremely connected to your biography. And you may not know about this, but in a photograph, the unconscious meets the conscious. There is something deeper inside of you on very low levels that comes out in 125th of a second, maybe in a repetitive way that you're connecting with. You keep shooting women in that way, men in that way, made it landscapes. You're connecting with the world in a particular way. And if other people see that and, and connect with the world because the way you explain it to them, you found something very valuable. And I think then you need to pursue that. But you need to know where you're coming from. Like I said before, you need to follow that river up to the source and find out why do I take those pictures? You know, what, wh how much of me is pure? You know, when you talked about it before, you asked me that question about the commercial part. And that shows very clearly photography and film. Uh, there's, it's not a pure art form. It's not like that you're a writer and you go to Norway for six months and you're writing a book or like, you know, like what you told me, you take sometimes three months to finish an art piece. Photography is like if you shoot celebrity, if you shoot even, you know, if you shoot any girl, like that's a certain status. It's like shooting out of a moving car or of a moving train. Yet needs to be fast. You have to like, it's again, 125th of a second. There's always a time restraint on it, and that picture needs to happen right then. And that little second, the way the finger is, the way she looks, something can be there. You're talking about some iconic shots I've done. It's because somehow they contain that message. Everything came together. It's almost like the perfect accident. In that impurity of the moment, of the people, of everybody involved, let it go, but somehow make sure it defines really what you are. Try to figure out where your vision comes from. Because I think what's most important in a picture, it's not the picture that matters. It's the idea people take away from the picture when they don't see it anymore. It's what the true process of photography happens after the picture. And that is what Marcel Proust says. He says a beautiful line. He says, in the dark room of our minds, we have many undeveloped films who explain us who we are. And that's really true. We all have so many undeveloped pictures in ourselves, that so many impressions that we haven't processed yet. There's such an unconscious part in us, but it goes into our photography somehow. It's there. It is who we are. It's that unconscious part that really defines us, the things that we gravitate to. But when you take pictures of it, it's a very surprising because suddenly it comes up. It's visual. It's there. It's right in front of you. I've done this. I like it. Why do I like this? Why do I shoot her like this? Why do I choose this hair? Why do I choose the angle? Why do I shoot the beach like this and that light? Why do I like this and another person like something else? There's this constant conversation with, with your unconscious experiences. And that's what really makes it interesting. But if you want to be a good photographer, you somehow need to cultivate it because you're communicating with others what now do you ever go into photo shoots with a, a a picture that you desire to achieve and then actually get that result perfectly 
I ask that because I never do. <laughs> no, I don't. Not really. No. And you know what? That's one of the reasons why I shoot film and I don't shoot digital. Because I think it's the wrong... The, the, that what, you, what you're talking about right now is excessive control. And I think the entire digital part of photography is made to have more control over the result. And I don't think that helps. I don't even think that's good. And I mean, I suffer with it and, and, and I beat myself up. And I, I definitely, I'm a very tormented kind of person about it. But you, when you shoot film, if I go to New York in a studio and I shoot Scarlett Johansson, I don't see the pictures sometimes until three, four days later, sometimes two weeks later, depending if I travel. And until I see the film, everything changed. My mind changed. I'm in a different frame. And then I look at those pictures and I try to reconnect. Clearly, I was pursuing something, but it was never perfect. And I have to rediscover it. And I think that that idea of, in general, losing control, not being in control, is very important. It's important for a communication because if I go into a meeting with somebody and I give them my opinion, and my opinion is well thought out and it, I, I really presented it well, I may be overwhelming this person but I'm not ready to really connect with him or resonate with him or receive his part because I'm so full of my opinion and I'm standing there, you know, like with both feet on the ground. And, and like I said, I, I may be really well in my presentation and presenting people in my opinion, but it's just my opinion. And that's not what art or, or communication is about. Communication is about to involve the other person. And the more you involve them, the more they're going to respond to your work. And if you just go there, like, you know, then you have some kind of one of these movies we're having right now, these uh, sci-fi flicks where people constantly flying through the air and you'd be madly impressed when you see the movie. But when they're over, you take nothing home. None of these, none of them will be remain classic. None of them will be a Casablanca or something that goes a little deeper in, into your own life. So I think you need to be not confusing, impressing people with communicating with people. Well, I also feel like like per, most of the work I know of you is, is always working with uh, some sort of a person or a figure kind of thing. And it, it, that entire process is incredibly collaborative in a way that a lot of people don't think it is. They think that the photographer is simply directing the subject to do something. But I find that oftentimes it ends up being that a much more collaborative thing. I mean, between hair, makeup, wardrobe, you know, if you have lighting people, whatever. And then of course, how the model interprets what you're trying to express and how you're trying to express. And oftentimes I find that I get exponentially better results when I kind of let the models define their own sort of definition of it instead of necessarily listening to exactly like directions. And you can because, you know, it's too much a child of the moment. You know, I mean, even if you talk about hair right now, you can never get hair like exactly the way you want it. It's hair. It moves. It's, it, it moves in the wind. It, it's, it maybe has a certain texture in that day. You know, the last time when I told you when we shot Adriana, we told her, just leave the hair alone. Just don't wash it overnight. Tomorrow it's going to have like an interesting texture. She did wash it. So we had to start all over. You know, it's, it's out of control. We do something else. She's in a different state. Does she wake up with her boyfriend? Does she wake up alone? How does she feel that day? When I shot there, just because I just told you about Scarlett Johansson, when I, when I shot Scarlett, she was pregnant. She didn't feel good at all. I think she was in the hospital before I worked with her. She had the morning sickness. 
you cannot bang these. They, they, these are not. It's not stone. It's a, an organic process, and you will get what that day will ever give you. And and you have to embrace it rather than trying to force it into a corset. You need to embrace it, and the personality that defines it it needs to come from you, not by pushing people into kind of like as you say. Look, let, let's let's compare it to this. Everything that's rigid. Everything that's stiff eventually will break. Everything that's adaptable and, and, and movable in nature, it, it will more or less fall back into its own shape. And I think if you, if you apply that physicality to a photo shoot, then you said, let it move. Let it go into all these weird shapes. Eventually, it will go back into what it's supposed to be. Indeed. You have been amazing Thank you very much for all of this. You're you're one of those times where like they say don't meet your idols, but you you've exceeded my expectations. You've been marvelous. Thank you so much. Thank you for having an interesting conversation, you know. But the same thing is for me. It's always good to think about it and it's not always easy to verbalize everything, you know, because it's true you rationalize it, but it it's good. It's a, it's a good process. I could feel that. I hope our conversation was some balance of entertainment and or educational because I know I've learned a lot from doing this podcast. I've learned many things I've done wrong and many things that I need to put more effort into for the rest of my career. I hope this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and maybe even a nice comment would also be greatly appreciated. I'd like to thank Nebulous1966 for their comment and five-star rating. Thank you, Nebulous66. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple's podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants, our partner organizations, are all available in the show notes, or you can find more information about the podcast on Instagram at the Wise Fool Pod or on our website, which is simply wisefoolpod.com. Mm-hmm.